0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And I'm going to do something a little different here today. As you know, I usually make my introductions to the Salon 2.0 podcast somewhat brief, But today, while I'm still going to keep my introduction of Lex Pelger's interview brief, before that I'm going to pass along a couple of announcements and then I'm going to tell you a story, a story about what happened to me 50 years ago today. So if you're mainly interested in Lex's interview, you can fast forward and just listen to the last 50 minutes of this podcast. Otherwise, here we go. First of all, I'd like to let you know about an interesting psychedelic conference that's going to take place about a month from now. It's called the Altered Conference, and it was started by Dax, who is one of our fellow saloners. This year, the Altered Conference is going to be even bigger than last year and has over 30 talks, workshops, and rituals about psychedelics and altered states of consciousness. They're featuring a great lineup with people like Zach Leary, James Fadiman, David Luke. Julian Vane and others, and they will be covering some hot topics, such as the latest research in microdosing, uh, Jungian astrology, and the synthesis of ketamine and DMT for otherworldly voyaging, and much, much more. Now, if this conference was in California, I'd try to be there, but alas, it's being held in Berlin. <laughs> so I recommend that our European saloners try to get there if they can, because, well, it's going to be a great place to find some of the others. And for more information, you can go to alteredconference.com. That's all one word, alteredconference.com. And if you buy a ticket there, you can use the code Psychedelic Salon, all one word, all caps, and use that at the checkout and you'll get a discount at alteredconference.com. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to tell you one of my stories. But if you're a glutton for punishment and want to hear even more of my wild tales, <laughs> well, there are two new podcasts for which I've been interviewed lately, and well, you can catch more of me there. The first one is TINAD, which stands for This Is Not a Drill Podcast, and you can find that at superorganism.space, and it's their podcast number 39. The other podcast I was on was episode 126 of the Tantra Punk Podcast, which you can find at tantrapunk.com. And I'll put a direct link to that in today's program notes, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. And uh, as best as I can remember... I don't think that I repeated any of my stories in either of those interviews. And, by the way, you might also want to check out some of the other programs in those very excellent podcast series. Now, I'd like to take a few minutes to tell you a story that, well, I've never told it in detail to anyone before. It's about something that happened to me 50 years ago today, which would make it October 3rd, 1967. At the time, I was the CIC officer on a Navy destroyer, the USS Hopewell, and for the previous two days, we had been steaming in company with two other destroyers. The three of us were providing protection for the aircraft carrier USS Oriskany, and we were on our way from Sasbo, Japan to Yankee Station in the Tonkin Gulf. We had been maintaining a speed of 27 knots almost all that time. And at that rate of speed, our old World War II non-FRAM destroyer was running low on fuel. So our little convoy slowed down so that the Oriskany could refuel us. At the time, we were just entering the South China Sea, uh, about midway between Taiwan and the northernmost island of the Philippines. When it was our turn, we came alongside the Oriskany to take on fuel. It was around 3.30 on a beautiful sunny afternoon when the two fuel hoses were slid over to us and the high wires that we had rigged between our two ships and then we began receiving fuel fore and aft. As the Combat Information Center officer, the CIC officer, my duty during unrep's was, well, it's essentially to do nothing other than to sit in CIC along with some of the men of my division. Other than the one man who was watching the long-range radar for us, No one else had any significant function to perform. Most of the men were gathered around a chart table, where our old chief petty officer was presiding with his tales about what it was like in the Old Navy, as if being on one of the Navy's oldest functioning destroyers wasn't Old Navy enough for them. I was over near the electronic countermeasures equipment, sitting on a tall stool. I don't know what the men were talking about, but I was daydreaming about my pregnant wife back in San Diego. You see, that day also happened to be our first wedding anniversary, and yet we were thousands of miles apart. Now I'd like to interrupt my little story here and just mention something that military families already know quite well. You see, whenever you hear someone thanking a service member for their sacrifices, If you haven't been in the military yourself, you may think that with the big new bases and the modern ships that their physical sacrifices are actually minimal. But the real sacrifice that service members and their families make isn't physical. It is the long separations from one another that are the hardest sacrifices. And when there's also the danger of war involved, the mental pain of separations is even greater. So there I was, lost in a melancholy reverie, when, after we'd been alongside, receiving fuel from the Ariskany for about a half an hour, the 1MC shipwide loudspeaker system came alive, and we heard the voice of our captain shouting, Stand by for collision! Well, before we could even begin to comprehend what he had just said, there was a huge crunching sound as we hit the Ariskany's starboard side. And then all the lights went out. Along with most of the men in CIC, I was thrown to the floor and for a brief moment, until our emergency lighting came on, I was as afraid as I've ever been. We had no idea what had happened. I'll spare you the minute details, but what had happened was that the big electric motor that drove our huge rudder, and it was a single rudder ship, well that motor dropped offline and caused us to lose steering. But if you've ever been on the bridge of a ship during a Navy unwrap, you know that even a few degrees change in the helm doesn't kick in immediately. And so it took a half a minute or so before the people on the bridge realized that they had no steering. And by the time that they realized they had lost control of the ship, well, there was no time for an emergency disconnect. So we scraped down the side of the Oriskany, rocking into it and back again and throwing us around, and in the dark of CIC, I'm sure that I wasn't the only one who was wondering if my end was near. On deck, I later learned, there was a hectic race to get out of the way of the stretching fuel hoses and the big wires holding them up. The collision was so violent that it tripped our boilers offline, causing us to lose all power. And as we bounced down her side, dead in the water fuel began to rush out of the hoses as the wires snapped and great chunks of our superstructure were twisted and torn off. Fortunately, the hole that was punctured in our hull was far enough above our waterline that we could proceed on our own to Subic Bay in the Philippines for repairs before returning to the Tonkin Gulf. Now, there are two more little pieces of that story that I have yet to tell. The first is the fact that only moments before we collided with the carrier she had raised her aircraft elevator that had been lowered when we first came alongside. Had that elevator still been down when we had the collision, well it probably would have scraped off most of the superstructure of my ship right at the deck line, including the combat information center where I had been so lazily dreaming only a few minutes earlier. The raising of that elevator may have saved my life. But here's another thing that raising that elevator brought about. Had it still been down when we hit, not only would it have scraped our deck clean, it would have probably caused enough damage to the Euriskini that it too would have had to break off from its mission at Yankee Station and head to Subic Bay for repairs. As it was, we sustained most of the damage, and the Euriskini managed to do their less extensive repairs while still at sea. Now, 23 days later, While out on Yankee Station, the Oriskany launched another of its daily airstrikes on North Vietnam. But that day, one of its pilots didn't return. He was shot down and held a prisoner for five years. His name is John McCain. Years later, our paths crossed once again. Actually, it was our swords that crossed that time, but that's another story. As I've said earlier, I've never told this full story to anyone before. At the time, since it involved the readiness of ships at war, it was classified, and while I always thought about it on my wedding anniversaries, I don't remember ever bringing it up. There were times, however, when I'd wake myself up and my partner at night, screaming because I was having another navy nightmare, and they usually had something to do with that collision. But several years ago, I learned that by having a few tokes of cannabis before I go to bed, I thankfully don't have those Navy dreams anymore. Well, now it's been 50 years since that event, and it's an experience that's still etched indelibly in my mind. However, uh, having just now transported myself back in time so as to remember this story, I now find it hard to believe that 50 years have passed since then. It seems like only a day. And so, this might be an interesting thing for you to do the next time you're with one of your older family members. Ask them what they were doing 50 years ago on that day. And once they figure it out, then ask them how they got from there to here. It should get them started telling a few of their own stories. And if my guess is right, they'll be really thankful to have somebody to tell them to. And now that I've finally told this story, well, I have to admit that I feel a lot better. I think that I can finally let it go. But (laughs) I'll still be having a few tokes before bedtime, just in case. So thanks for listening. Now, at long last, here is Lex Pelger with today's program.
1: This is a Non-Nonsense production. If you like what you hear and want to help us make the Salon 2.0 bigger and better, sign up to support this work monthly on patreon.com. As a two-person production, any help goes a long way. Join us at patreon.com slash nononsense. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Welcome to our interview with the author and shaman, Sergei Barinov. He's quite an intriguing character, going from life in Russia to a community in California, and then finally finding his path to the sacred cactus. In his book, Path, Seeking Truth in a World of Lies, he covers his life as a cult member, a coffin salesman, a real estate broker, and a devotee, always seeking. Things started to click for him after he read the words of Alexander Shulkin, There are many shamans scattered around the world. Search for them. Sergei's path took him to Mexico, to the deserts of the Southwest States, and finally to South America, where he now lives with his wife and young daughter. Along the way, a near-death experience that you will hear about changed everything. If you'd like to see more, Ben Stewart, who we'll be hearing from next week, made an excellent film about Sergei's work and ceremonies. In addition, we'll be linking to some of our favorite pieces of his writing in the episode notes. As Shulgin said, keep seeking. I am here with Sergei Baranov, who is currently in Peru and helping to do the work for practitioners uh, looking to learn more about uh, plant medicines. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Thank you,
2: Lex. Great to be here.
1: So, before I, I learn more about your story, which is great, and, and talk about your book, I wonder if you could just tell us some more about the long history of these mescaline-containing cactuses and how long they go
2: back with humans. Okay, well, it's a long con- uh, it will be a long conversation in itself.
1: That's okay. You know.
2: So, <laughs> so, what archaeologists are telling us that this tradition goes back... At least three thousand years. And how do you know this? Uh, there is a place called Chavin de Huantar, which is the temple of uh, Chavin culture in the Central Andes of Peru, and, and uh, it it's um, it is thought to be the cradle of Indian civilization. And um, the temple itself was uncovered in 1919 by archaeologists. It was completely underground. And since then, they um excavated and found interesting things. So the radiocarbon-dated uh, organic matter, which they found there, bones and, you know, all that can be dated. And this is the number they came up with, 3,000 years. Now... Personally speaking, when I go there and take the medicine there, and uh, my teacher lives there, he is uh, this is his home basically, physically and metaphysically. I get the feeling that it's uh, much older culture, something that goes well beyond recorded history. So this is just the feeling of antiquity that you get there on the medicine. But even if it's just three thousand years, which is proven, that's pretty long um time for unbroken tradition to survive all the upheavals and then, then uh, 16th and 15th centuries you know conquista and survived that and still went through and reached our day so in the temple you can see you know the whole uh, iconography is anthropomorphic so half human half animals and uh, the cactus, Wachuma, also known as uh, San Pedro, present everywhere. It's like a central um, image of the whole thing. Now, mm-hmm. inside, uh, actually, you can see this uh, behind my back. Do you see that? That is Wachumero. This is a exact copy of the image carved on the central plaza in the Wantar. It's a half-man, half-jagger holding the cactus in his hands, which uh, which can be uh, understood in different ways. Uh, one way is, um, you know, it's like uh, it's a message to future generation, and it's a message that is that has objective meaning, which means it cannot be misinterpreted by people. It's not like a text that you can read and understand differently. Here, here we are, hold on to the cactus, and it will be okay. that's the message, you know. So that's how I see. it. And he's ecstatic and he's good, and you know, you can tell so and if
1: and if anybody wants to see the image, uh, it's also on Sergei's website at shamansworld.org you can uh, and, it, yeah. and it's very it is very striking, a
2: very clear Cactus message it, right <laughs> there in your face. Yes, so it's a half jaguar, half man, which is the you know central deity of Chavin culture, holding the cactus inside. So to me, it's a very clear message, and um, I follow that. <laughs> That's uh, and and how did your own journey
1: begin with these plants that finally led you to San Pedro?
2: Well, that's a, that's a story of my life, you know, and uh, I spoke about it in my book. Um, early on, I was interested in, um, you know, spirituality and esoteric stuff and, you know, awakening and Eastern philosophy and all that. And during the time when I was in my early twenties, um, I had, um, I used what I could during that time which at that time was ecstasy. That was my favorite thing. And, um, that was, uh, I see, I, I saw a key to that world, which I want to learn more about in that tool. So for me, it was a tool. I never really took a pill just to be stupid. You know, it's just, I took it to think, to feel, to understand. And, um, it served well during many years. Uh, I really thought that that's the only thing there for me to do the work I want. And that's living in the, you know, back then I was living in Israel. And, you know, there are no really sacred plans there at the time. It just was, you know, psychedelics and you know, street drugs and whatever. So, of course, you know, I went through many of those But never to escape reality, rather to engage reality. So I had to try different drugs and realizing that this is not that and that's not that. And, you know, and then you kind of move from drugs to psychedelics and then you realize that, yes, of course, that's uh, that's the gate, you know, that's the doorway. And um, you continue with that. But then... Later on, uh, when I already moved to the States and, uh, you know, the search continued, then I realized uh, that now it is actually possible to look for shamans because it was just not possible to do it from where I was at that time. And um, it was very interesting uh, uh, who actually motivated me. It was Alexander Shulgin. <laughs> Which is interesting, uh, you know. I always loved the guy, and uh, but it was uh, when I was searching, I saw his website, and on the website, it was a banner, uh, you know, seek for shamans, discover all over the world. And that was quite uh, an interesting statement because the guy is uh, a scientist, hardcore professor in biology, pharmacology, whatever. I mean, the guy is scientist you know it's a love man and here he is telling you go look for shamans so i took it um, in a a way that um, i'm just going to do it and i started to search for them and quite quickly i you know i found people in peru who were seriously working with the medicines so i contacted them they came and this is how everything started in 2005 so I came to Amazon, and it was like a five-week uh, retreat, started from ayahuasca, then moving to the cactus wachuma. In the Andes, actually where I am now. And this is how it begins. And since that point, of course, everything, it's kind of, um, um, well, no more pills at that point. And, you know, when you get to the medicine then you realize what's real ecstasy and with all respect to the mdma stuff you just realize that this is just a level uh, it's just another level you know it's the organic ecstasy the pure the good and the best you know (laughs) so that's kind of the story
1: And the story goes on. It's an excellent book. And one of the things you mentioned that doesn't get known well enough is that MDMA or ecstasy is actually derived from the mescaline molecule, which comes from this old plant, cactus. That's very
2: interesting. That's another point. Uh, Later when I was looking at Shulgin's uh, videos, you know, his interview, and I thought he was a very interesting uh, person, you know, that has to be studied. And in one interview, he spoke about his – Masculine experience that changed his life completely torn. It, it, the masculine experience that he describes gave, shaped, uh, gave, gave shape to his whole life. He was so inspired that he started to look into this um, dimension and try to make it available in a different way. And that's how I understood. So it, there was connection between mescaline, which was derived from the peyote at the time, and then MDMA, and you know all that story. So there is more connections there. You know, it's like I thought, like yeah, of course, I understand what he's speaking about when he's speaking about colors that he never saw in his life and the depth and all that. So it was very interesting. So I, to me, it was um, a confirmation that that's the that's where it's going. You know. And, of course, if you like ecstasy, then for sure you will like mescaline. They're very much, uh, you know, there is a difference. But they are from the same family, I would say, just that the MDMA had that um, chemical flavor to it, which uh, it's very hard to deal with, you know. And it's just a price that you have to pay for a few hours of magic, you know. So here, there is no price, And the the journey is much longer, and you pay nothing in that terms. So it's like, with all respect to the chemical, here it is something that you can take with much, uh, um, at lower, much lower cost, physically speaking, psychologically, you know.
1: And what can you tell us about the effects of mescaline itself and then also mescaline in the context of all the other alkaloids in the, the various cacti that get used?
2: Well, um, I can speak from my personal experience. I never took mescaline, um, you know, extracted mescaline. I never took it in. I will not do that because personal belief, I, personally I believe that um, When you bring a plant to the lab, you kill its spirit. That's how I feel it. You know, it's like the 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 alcohol is there, the experience is there, but you kill the plant. You kill the spirit of the plant. So, shamanically speaking, it's not the best way to do it. The best way is to take the whole plant from the ground, you know, and then you take the whole spirit of it with you. You eat the earth with it, the whole planet with it, you know. So... And from what I can tell, I can only compare this experience with other people who had, like Aldous Huxley, who speaks about uh, his masculine experience in Doors of perception, which is totally mystical. He definitely tapped into the mystical dimension of it, for sure. Uh, but yet I um, don't see in his description the emotional part, that nature-based Empathy and connection that is missing, and I think it because there was no plan but rather an alkaloid extraction given in the glass of water in the apartment in uh, you know in l a it's not exactly how you get into the into the bottom of it so The masculine itself, the the masculine, uh, well, the Wachuma experience, it's a very, very, it's a heart consciousness, you know. It opens you up. It connects you deeply to who you are, deep down in your heart who you are. And through that connection, you connect to nature. And through nature, you connect back to yourself. So it's a very, very kind of symbiotic experience. And you become one with the whole, you really, you really become self aware as you can. You know, it's a self awareness. It's a, you become conscious of yourself, conscious of yourself and the world you're living around. And, you know, everything makes sense suddenly. Everything makes sense. You're no longer searching, you're no longer craving. You know. It's the knowing that comes in it. And it's not really always intellectual, although it is a very philosophical plant in a sense. You get a lot of insights into everything. But it's not even there anymore. You know, the 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 healing, the deep soul healing comes in that connection, in that being, in that state of being where you are. You are and you good and you happy and you in love. Just a pure love with the whole thing. And it's a very coherent uh, experience. You're not going anywhere, you know, you're not, you're actually coming in. That's how I would describe it. So it's a very, very steady in that sense, a very grounding medicine. You are here, you are now, you're just more aware of who you are and the whole thing, of the whole life. And it's a very ecstatic medicine. Uh, it's a long journey. It's about 12 hours, 14 hours. You know, it depends how strong the brew is. It can go for longer. And we spend the time in nature, always nature. We drink in nature and uh, we're just there, um, contemplating the beauty in silence. Uh, because silence, this is where I found the gate to understanding. It's, uh, it's where you can, a place where you can quiet your mind and open your heart and just feel. Just feel the world, feel life, feel the universe. So it's a very loving, kind medicine. That's beautiful.
1: Um, I would be curious what you hear from people who it's their first time uh, experiencing this and what advice you might have for people who would want to prepare themselves for their first uh, time, if they were interested?
2: Well, you know, it really depends on the person. It's really what you bring to it. You know, we do what we do, and uh, what you bring to it, you know, gives a flavor to the experience. But um, preparation, there is no uh, dietary preparation that I can see. I just don't believe in that. Um, That's not how I work with it. That's not how my teachers work. We don't do any diets. We eat what we want and just in the morning we don't eat. We uh, do it on the empty stomach and let the medicine, you know, easily absorb in your body. And then you have dinner at night. So the first uh, ceremony, you know, you just have to know why you do it, you know. You just have to really look inside and feel that place from which you want to touch a sacred plant. And it's different it's uh, you know, any plant. Or any psychedelic experience should be coming from that place. It's why I want to do this. Why? Uh, You have to kind of see a certain search inside that leads you to that. Or at least a healthy curiosity, you know, but never kind of uh, recreational and just kind of get away thing and an escape thing, you know. Because it's not, it's actually a very engaging medicine. It brings you right where you are and makes you think and see and makes you work in a good way. but you know there is a certain demand from you. there is a certain uh, commitment that you have to bring to this. So it's a really mental. You just come with trust, trust in yourself, trust in the medicine, trust in the person who gives you the medicine. And that's it. That's really probably, it's all you can do. You just come sincere. Sincere in your intention, open-minded, open-hearted, and ready for a new experience. And then see how it unfolds and then you know, take from there.
1: That's good. And be prepared to work. Because uh, you, be <laughs> you, had, you had quite a long journey. The name <laughs> of the book, uh, Path Seeking Truth in a World of Lies, It's it's a great, uh, look at the different places you went and so it was a start in the Andes but then uh, a temple in Arizona for your next experiences
2: uh, yes I think uh, yes Peru then I was in Peru actually was interesting when I was on the Wachuma in the jungle this is when first time I thought that now I can actually find peyote it just become possible at that moment so I thought okay when I come back I'm just going to search for peyote shamans and have the experience and uh, I found people in Arizona, uh, it's a peyote Way Church. very good people, and they're running the peyote ceremonies in their own way. It's not really Native American ways, they are doing their own thing. And um, I went there, contacted them, and came there, had the peyote experience, and it was, uh, of course, very beautiful and very much alike to Wachuma. Both are masculine cactus, but you know, with a different flavor to it. And then from there, I realized that I can now look for, you know, Mexican shamans and see what, what's going on there. You know, I'm kind of going back to Carlos Castaneda, which I read when I was 20 and I thought like, you know, this world is now, uh, within reach. I just felt it. So there was, uh, you know, so I was kind of let. There. And then, you know, next thing I know, I'm sitting with Indian shamans in, um, you know, Sierra Madre and taking medicine, taking peyote with them. So, so it was really great. You know, it was beyond uh, what I could wish for, you know.
1: And, and what, uh, what practices do you learn from the Wichal in terms of holding space for this?
2: Well, we did it in a different way there. Um, You know, the ritual ceremony is there, you know, it's like a three-day ceremony and it's like, it's a whole, it's a long process and, you know, bringing deer and it's, it's a big thing actually. So we really didn't do that. And I've been with rituals there, but we did it in a, in a way that I wanted it more. Like they really respected my, um, wish and they probably saw that that would be most beneficial for me. And that was simple fire on the ground all night, taking medicine under the stars, you know, and just kind of going through it and prayers and songs, but with a little structure as possible. And the peyotes uh, and the peyoteras that was with us, uh, you know, there were eight years old people. I mean, lifelong peyote people. So they enjoyed it a lot. And there was a lot of joy in it, and it was a lot of. You know, a lot of depth, a lot of magic, but it was silent mostly. So I don't know if I took from there um how to hold the space. It was at that at that time it was it was not about holding space for me. At that time it was uh finding my path, just finding my truth. So it was a, a bit different um journey there. But it was very important of course, and you know if you read the book then You get to the point when I, uh, you know, get to that shamanic initiation, (laughs) which came through death. and uh,
1: Would you care to share that story?
2: Sure. uh, You know, it was my uh, sixth uh, time when I came there. It was November uh, 2008. And it was just one of those times, just regular going there to see my friends, take some medicine and, you know. Uh, but this time it was different, and somehow it felt different, and um, it was a bit tense. The tension in the air, and I could feel it. It's like I came, and I didn't feel very welcomed, and I said, well, you know, maybe I just, you know, go home, <laughs> you know, and the people who were waiting for me, they were tense somehow. So I said, well, you know what, I'm already here, so I'm not giving up, you know. I'm not that person, I... When there, I'm doing this, you know, whatever is there. And we started the ceremony and the whole thing went differently. And the shaman I I was with, he said that, you know, you have to build that, um, you know, that's kind of circle of mud around the fire and uh, be very careful as you do it because the way you do it will, uh, the way you do it will determine your future. So I feel like, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, intimidation in this. Like, okay, so I'm going to build that circle on the dirt in my life, going to depend on that, or whatever. I'm just going to do it the best I can anyway, you know. So somehow he knew that is going, something going to be, something going to happen, but for sure nobody actually knew. It's, uh, it's just an intuitive thing. That you follow your intuition, but nobody actually knew what's coming. I don't believe for a second. And uh, I did that, and we started the ceremony, and everything went natural. And, um, you know, I took the cup, another cup, another cup, and I drank there a lot. And at midnight, it was a full moon. And at midnight, he asked me to bless the water as I was a fire keeper, you know, and so I blessed the water and drank some water, gave him, put on the earth. And, um, uh, I remember we sat in silence right after that. And I was having my stick, you know, um, you know, putting the organizing the, um, wood in the fire. And my last words were, Peyote is real. Peyote is real. That was my understanding. This is real. And this is what I was searching for actually you know and as i said like, a few minutes after that i felt um, you know like stings in my legs and i you know i jumped off the mud and i kind of got scared and like what the hell is going on here you know that's not uh that doesn't you know that's a different energy here. you know. I got stung by something, and I took my pants, and I looked, and they knew right away what happened. But they didn't tell me right away. He just said, you know, you just relax, don't panic, because you make it worse. You know, and like, what is going on? And then within 20 minutes, I started to feel so sick that uh, you just need to lay down on the mat by the fire, and that's it. And then the whole hell unfolds. So I was stung by a deadly scorpions, you know, right like an inch below my genitals. And, um, for the next 18 hours, I was completely paralyzed in agony. Like you don't have a vision. You don't have anything. It's like you're just purely conscious of yourself. You are conscious in your body. You, you're realizing that you're, <laughs> that, you know, that you're right there. And that's pretty much. It's for you, you know, and then with every hour you become like totally, like you lose your body completely because the, the, this uh, venomous neurotoxin, so it attacks your nervous system and shuts down the whole thing. That's how people die from it. You kind of choke on your own saliva because you're, uh, you can't breathe, everything stops, and that's it. So, what Piotr did, it helped me to, um, uh, breathe very little but enough to survive and it's also uh, i think it blocked my liver from getting killed too so it gives me the strength to survive but there was a personal uh, you know personal journey in it uh, realizing you know how much i love life and it was you know i was dying basically you know the, the death was right there and and i'm what 32 so I was not scared. I was not afraid to die, but it was very disappointing. You know, I feel like you know, I just found my path. I just found that which I was looking all my life, and now that's it. It just, just no, no. And I started to fight for my life and going through this, and it was it was finding your inner strength to push the death. Away. So it was three days of hell. 18 hours complete, paralyzed. Then you kind of fighting and kind of getting your sense back together and moving and, and standing and laying down because you're so sick and it, it, agony. And, and then the next night, you don't sleep the three nights, you know, you, you feel like you have electricity over your body, like you feel like you're plugged in to, you know, nuclear power plant for, you know, 72 hours. So there is no much sleeping there. It's horrible. It was a very difficult physically and, you know, psychologically experience. But, uh, you know, and, and the shaman said when I was already lying down, because I was totally conscious, I could hear him, he was, he had to drink the whole peyote we had, you know, he, like a, bu- a bucket of It was all for him, and, you know, he was just drinking medicine, making the fire, and keeping me warm, which I didn't feel warm at all, I feel like I'm freezing to death. I actually didn't know if I will die from the venom or I will die from the, to get, from being cold, you know, you feel like your soul become. And ice, you know, ice. So, and then the sun came and it's Mexico. It's very hot, but still you feel the same. So it was very, very cold for three days inside yourself. But he said, like, you know, I cannot do anything. You have to go through it. So by the time he knew that that that's, was, you know, my initiation, you know, into that world. And it's... um Interesting because it happened with this guy. And this guy, he's known, you know, he's like uh, 70 now. He takes peyote for 50 years. He knows. He's known in North America around the peyote people, you know. And uh, it's interesting that uh, he had his own initiation into this world through rattlesnake bite. And he spent five days with peyote dying. So he knew exactly what, what's happening. I mean, it's like I took his medicine. You know, it's like I was initiated through him and this is the medicine, you know. So that's what he. you know, his name is Rattlesnake. You know, his shamanic name is Rattlesnake. Everybody knows him like that. And uh, he told me later that although I got uh, more than enough uh, venom to die, uh, I have to be um, grateful that I was not initiated by the Rattlesnake. So, you know, I said like, okay, well, it's hard to imagine how much worse it can get, you know, I was pretty, pretty bad. So that was the thing. And that was my last time I went to Mexico after that. I never went back. And, uh, yeah, we are in touch. We're talking. And, uh, he, before I left, he said that I will be grateful forever for that experience, which at that time I, you know, I wasn't sure very much. I just wanted to leave and go home and kind of, Like, (laughs) not sure, not sure about that. You know, it was a bit, uh, you know, beyond all you can imagine. You know, so when you have peyote in your blood and the venom at the same time, the agony and the ecstasy. So you know, it's it's a very unique experience which you wouldn't wish for. Like, if I would know that that was, you know. The thing to do, I don't know. I might not go there. I might think, you know what? Thank you. You know, I'm. I think I will be okay without that. You know, it's like uh, that's why you never asked for that thing. So you just been, you just been taken. You know, and that's it. And there you are. And now, of course, like it was what nine years passed. So I look back, and it's just as mysterious as it was then. It's there is no. There is no new insights into it. There is nothing beyond what I felt then. It's it's the same thing. It's the same mystical, magical, you know, event. But I'm grateful for that, for sure, because I do feel um, that I base my work now on that experience. I feel like I earned my um, rite of passage doing that. So I understand his words and forever grateful, just as he said. So that's pretty much, uh, you know, in details. Wow. Well, in some details.
1: Wow. That is an amazing story. And it makes me think of Humphrey Osmond, who you mentioned in your book, to fathom hell or sore angelic, take a pinch of psychedelic and some scorpion stings, apparently. Wow. <laughs> wow that is. You can add that to the brew. <laughs> to the brew. Whew. Um, and so it was, it was the grateful experience. He said, did, did it through that help you to to realize that you would yourself be a practitioner as well?
2: Not at that time, not at that time. No, I went back to California and there were a few more events and then I realized that it's my time to move to Peru. Something I wanted to do during the three years I was coming here before taking the medicine, working with shamans, but I was not ready to actually make the move and actually serve the medicine so after that experience as I went home and a few months past I felt that something changed and there was a meeting with uh Hawk and Owl in, in which I realized that this is my time and it was like a green light you know it was the doors were open so you know I took my cats you know and moved to Peru <laughs> since and, you know, living here since.
1: And what was it like to to jump from a, a comfortable life in the United States to starting over in Peru with this intention in mind?
2: Yes, you know, uh, certainly it's uh, <laughs> um, it's difficult because, you know, you, you live in America and you have a certain standards and you have a certain comfort and um, now you're going to Peru to end this where life is much more primitive than that. And, uh, you know, there is a cultural shock for sure. And, but, you know, I was traveling here three years, so I understood how things are. I felt it already. I saw it was not the first time. But still, it was. I realized that it's going to be hard, and I came without any money, you know. I just had a very little to start with. But I didn't care. I felt like it's my path, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow my heart, and I'm going to serve this medicine because this is my medicine. And this medicine that, you know, that satisfies my inner thirst that nothing else could um, before that. So I was ready to die here. I was ready to stuff to death. It didn't matter. Uh, I thought, like, it's better I die, you know, on my knee or my, you know, foot walking my path than living somewhere in, you know, in disconnection and kind of uh, in material World without any hope. So for me, it was okay. I just came here and I started over. And of course, it's my third immigration. So I'm kind of a veteran. In that it's like you know, already, from Soviet Union went to Israel, and from Israel went to America, from America here. That's my you know fourth country. So I I've been in this shoes before, and it's always hard. And you know what's there for you. It's, you know that for a few years you will feel dumb because you can't talk and you will feel like you, you, you know, you're just not, uh, uh fit in the new environment. So you understand that that's what's going to happen. It's in our language, it's in our culture and it's starting over and it's going to be difficult. You understand that it's, it was a conscious thing. It, you know, it was a conscious uh, decision to come and meet. Myself, you know, it was a challenge to myself, but it was a good challenge. It's, uh, it was a, you know, on, on the way to my, uh, towards my destiny, towards my happiness. So, any price you pay, worth it. That's how I saw it. So yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's challenging, but you understand why you're doing that, you know.
1: And I'm curious about the challenge of transitioning from someone who is taking the medicine to someone who is now providing the
2: medicine yeah well it came very quick it's just i came to peru within few few first months i already had my first ceremony because before when i came you know all i was doing here was just taking medicines walking in the mountains and enjoying the beauty and looking for beautiful places to bring people to you know and uh, it was kind of uh, natural to me. It was not a, you know, a one day drama kind of thing. No, it just was a natural thing. And I invited a few people around, you know, make good medicine for them. It was a beautiful day. And these were people who already were saving medicine for many years. So I brought them. I they had a great time and I realized that this is it, you know, I can do it i can do it because uh, I intuitively i uh, felt that you know although there is a certain uh, you know initiation into it and, and blessings from other people from uh, you know yes there is that but still it's not really by the lineage that's what i understood it's more by exploration you know it's it's available it's here for you if you're up to it. That's how I felt. it. You know, it's not like somebody has to come and, and, and give me that uh, diploma, you know. You know, you can do it now. It's like, um, even though I had that too, I had blessing from the shamans. But that's not, you know, it was just like on top of this. It's like, thank you, you know, great. You know, makes me feel better. But still I do that because I feel like I have the right, uh, the same right as anybody else. If I'm up to it, if I'm cold and I'm up to it, then that's mean I can, <laughs> you know. So it's more by exploration than by lineage, you know. You have to come from the line of shamans, has to be in your blood, you know. I I feel like this hierarchy, it's uh, it's 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 less spiritual than spirituality of the planet itself, you know. It, it was certain. Um, Really, a hierarchy of things, you know, it's like a kind of, almost like a caste caste system in India. You know, you're born in this caste and that's it until next reincarnation. You know, it's like no, I'm not, I'm not buying into it. I don't believe in caste and don't believe in, um, you know, all that stuff. I believe in uh, personal experience. I I born as human here on this planet, and these are the plants that are growing here, and I have the right to work with them and explore them. That's it, you know. And you do it with respect, with love and dedication. So that was kind of uh, how it started for me. So, of course, it created conflicts around. Of course, there were people who were coming and saying, you know, yeah, you are a gringo, you know. You, you don't have the right to do that. It's like we are a people of the land. So there was this... Conflict, you know, but I just went through it. It's like, it doesn't matter. I take the medicine and I love it. So who is going to stop me? It's like just me. If I believe that that's the truth, then I'm the only block on my way. So you're just going through it. It's like, no, my medicine loves me. I mean, it it loves to come through me because I loves, I love my medicine. So we are one. So it comes through me. I have that permission from the medicine. From the spirit itself. I mean, who else do you need? I don't need approvals from people. You know, it's it, it, it's hard to uh, explain more how it feels. You know?
1: Yeah, but I could see that causing causing local conflict uh, for sure.
2: It, it was it wasn't the beginning. Not anymore. It's like I went through that. It's like no, but it was. It started that way when I was you know younger and just came here and you have less support than you have now so it was easy to kind of uh kick me out of the way in a sense now it's just impossible
1: and now you have uh what you call the cactus house uh correct
2: Yeah,
1: um, yeah right here in the that's cactus right. house. and I, I love this part so you dipped each uh brick in the juice of the cactus
2: yeah yeah, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was thinking how, uh, how I can um, get closer to the spirit of the plant. I was drinking the juice, I was eating the flesh, what else I could do to get closer. And then in one ceremony, I, I thought like, uh, you know, if I build a house, I would make sure that every brick soaked in the medicine. So you kind of create a cactus for yourself, you live in the cactus. And that's what happened. Um, we started to build the house soon after. And I cut lots of cactus around, hundreds of them. And just, you know, put them in a big, uh, you know, building cylinders, you know, and they were there. And all this juice was uh, put on the bricks. So every brick has medicine absorbed in it. So the whole house is built from that. So you actually living in the cactus house that's why I'm calling it cactus house you know and it's a very it's, you know I thought it was quite unique that that's unique and it sounds like a, a
1: great space to have ceremonies and, and can you tell me a little bit about your ceremonies and, and what's important to you as you run them
2: how we do it yes uh, well we we always uh, you know drink outside nature we go out so we have beautiful places around beautiful river beautiful rocks sacred sites it's all here around we go out early in the morning, like 9, and we, you know, start the ceremony there Very with, with minimum structure, just, you know, showing respect, blowing some smoke, and, you know, helping people to focus and relax and take the medicine. And then I encourage everyone to find their own place around. We're all together, but it's not like you're not in... You're not sitting next to each other. You find your tree and you find your rock. We're all here in that forest, you know, but nobody in your space, you know. It's important to have your own uh, privacy. And then I encourage people to embrace silence. And that goes for the first three, four hours because this medicine has a two phases. Uh, first is a passive, very passive and very, Um you feel kind of lucid dreaming, and you want to lay down, close your eyes, and the medicine comes and kind of scans you and heals you on that level. And you feel held like in the mother's hands, you know. So it goes for three, four hours. So you, you, you don't want to be active that time. You don't want to force intellect or any physical activity. You just want to embrace it and let the medicine unfold. And then at a certain point, it wakes you up. You just realize that that's it. Don't want to sleep anymore. You just wake up and then you look around and it's a, it's a very much a contemplative state when you really see the beauty around and really connecting. And this is one time to kind of write thoughts and things about thing and, you know, and do some walking later. So mostly it's in silence. I, I do talk to people in private, you know, when I feel like somebody needs a talk. It's intuitive thing. If, if I see you sitting there, you know, with a smile like this, then you don't need me, you know, you just enjoy your time, you know. But if, you know, if I see someone crying and kind of, uh, getting a bit, you know, scared, then it's a time to, to give support. So you just come and you just give support with your presence, sometimes with words, sometimes, you know, just take your walk a little bit. You just bring people back to that, um, um, confidence. That's it. And then it's kind of a wave and then wave path and then you're okay for the rest of the day, you know. So it's uh, providing support when needed. And it's important to remove yourself from the experience because it's not really about me. It's about you taking the medicine and having the experience. So I'm there to hold it, to support it, but uh, to, to a minimum possible, you know. Otherwise it will be about me and then uh, it's kind of growing into a cult. You know, that's what you don't want, you know, you want to, to keep it clean and, uh, you know, experiential, private and sacred with confidence and with support and you know, all you need until you get more experience and feel confident more and, you know, you need less of that.
1: Great. Thank you. It sounds wonderful. So if people want to come and visit you, they can find you at shamansworld.org?
2: yes oh i uh through Facebook page I open a you know make a Facebook page which is Wachuma Wasi, and that's our place here' it's the name of our place and Wachuma Wasi means the cactus house in Quechua, the language of the land Wasi is the house, and Wachuma is the name of the plant, so it's Wachuma wasi, and you know I post pictures pictures from ceremonies and you know place inside so people get a good uh, uh, view of where they're going where they need to stay you know and the places around so trying to keep it interactive you know and uh, it's a beautiful comfortable place you know because uh, i realized that that was missing for me personally as a westerner going to you know mexico and sleeping on the ground and having my back heard, and it's like you know, I would appreciate some hot showers, some Wi-Fi to talk to my folks, you know. It's like you don't have it there. It's like you're completely isolated and you know, it's 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 there is good thing for of course so it helps you to completely disconnect and unplug from your ordinary life. But at the same time, for me personally it was hard to take medicine and not to talk to my folks and not to know what's going on at home, you know. So it was kind of emotional uh um, ache. So I thought, you know, there is no need for that. We can create it in the sense that you come home and you talk to your children, your wives, your parents, whoever you want to talk, and they're all good and it's okay and it gives you that comfort. So there is no need to, that, to, to create that extra suffering. It's like the work itself is demanding. So you can make it nicer while providing people with, you know, basic things they need, you know, good hot shower, good Wi-Fi, so everything is okay. You know, you're here and everybody there. But during the day, we go out. So you kind of uh, – it's a combination of things. It's a balanced experience. Mm,
1: that sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. We're going to be linking to the, your book and, the, and some of your articles uh, and your website in the, in the episode notes.
2: And sure, yeah, I just think. thank
1: you so much for sharing your wisdom and for pro- providing the uh, – the, the cacti
2: thank you very much it's uh, it's fun to talk to
1: <laughs> thanks for listening to the psychedelic salon 2.0 to help us out you can leave a review or rating on your favorite podcast service or share an episode with a friend it really does make a difference And to follow along with everything else we're working on, check out patreon.com slash nononsense.